You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and other guests discuss primary care issues that are on their minds and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. Hi, I'm Dr. Katie Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and today I'm talking about gastroesophageal reflux, or GER or GERD. Before we start talking about that, though, let's start with some definitions. So gastroesophageal reflux is defined as the passage of gastric contents into the esophagus with or without regurgitation and or vomiting. This is a rather common physiologic process, with 50 to 70% of infants having reflux and the incidence peaking around four to six months of age. We call it gastroesophageal reflux disease, or GERD, when reflux leads to complications, such as esophagitis, stricture, weight loss, or respiratory issues. This is less common, although not uncommon, with an estimated prevalence of 10 to 20%. Helping us sort the happy spitters from GERD is Dr. Jefferson Brownell, who's an attending physician with the Division of Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Brownell. Thank you, Katie, for having me. I'm really excited to be here. This is always a hot topic on the boards and a great episode for trainees, but even for experienced pediatricians, this is something that we see, as I said, not uncommonly, and it seems sometimes that the evidence out there changes over time. So I'm glad that you're here to help us figure out what is current. So as I mentioned, happy spitters, these are typically babies in the first few weeks of life who spit up a mouthful of milk without much effort or fussiness, and otherwise they look well and happy. I distinguish these from the babies who seem uncomfortable or fussy, have feeding issues, and have poor weight gain who are more consistent with GERD. Let's acknowledge, though, that there are other reasons why babies spit up. So what are some of the other red flags that should prompt referral to the ED or GI? Yeah, so absolutely the right way to think about them, of course. You know, the Happy spitters that we tell everyone is really a laundry problem, not a actual medical problem. <laughs> but the red flags are going to vary with age, right? So, you know, if you're a pediatrician in the newborn nursery and your infant is spitting up their entire feed, they're not urinating, they have hypoglycemia, the things that you're trained to look for, you know, as a newborn nursery pediatrician, obviously should raise your suspicion or your spidey sense for something in addition to just typical spit up. You know, now the infants that you see in your office, you know, you start to think about, all right, the anatomic things maybe aren't going to be as big of a deal. And so then, you know, throwing up blood or bile, there's the inconsolability. You know, the question on the boards is going to be obviously the uh, hair tourniquet. But, you know, if you've ruled all those things out and you have an inconsolable baby, Reflux should definitely be something that's on there. There are airway issues. So infants who reflux and then cough once or twice, maybe not necessarily a huge deal. You know, we like to say they're protecting their airway. But if that happens every time they spit up or, you know, they seem to have other signs of respiratory distress, cyanosis, those sorts of things, that'd be concerning. And then really, you know, a child in any age, um, weight loss or not gaining weight and associated with clear symptoms of reflux is a red flag. And then, you know, that whole category that 
I think we end up seeing in GI clinic a lot are the children who are gaining weight well, but their feeding time is starting to become stressful. This is one of those things that I always kind of go back to is just how culturally important feeding is. And it means a lot for a parent to be able to feed their child. And, you know, when that whole setup starts to be disturbed, that can be really problematic. Like we all, we all know the patient who, you know, they're feeding like every hour on the hour because it's the only way the parent can get them to feed, you know, like at a certain point that actually becomes a really destructive relationship. And so even though there aren't necessarily the symptom signs, you know, anything that's causing a, a disruption to that successful feeding is going to kind of put someone off on a course they don't want to be on. And so, you know, of course, that's kind of the the practical side of things. For the boards, you know, you have those red flag symptoms that we talked about already, like the blood, the bile, inconsolability, that sort of thing. And just sorry to hark back to what you said earlier, things have changed even uh, in mm -hmm. my decade of practice. And so, you know, it's funny, this is a huge topic of emphasis recently, but of course, as you mentioned, a, an area that's constantly evolving. And, you know, that kind of comes up to the art of pediatrics. There are definitely times where the art of practice may differ from what our professional guidelines are. And so, of course, our guidelines, our board questions, those are supposed to be kind of the basic framework for thinking about these. But, you know, then you have all that overlay on top of it that makes you a good pediatrician. So we're definitely aware that there are all of these other more serious conditions sometimes like biliary atresia, metabolic conditions, structural malformations like fistulas, genetic conditions, many reasons why infants may spit up. We're going to be clear, though, that we are not talking about those conditions on this podcast, just run-of-the-mill GERD. And we are aware of those red flags that you just mentioned, but we're going to be focusing on otherwise healthy infants with GERD. So NASPAGAN recommends modifying the feeding regimen for infants with GERD. And there are a few elements to this recommendation that I want to talk about with you because, as you mentioned and I mentioned before, the science here keeps evolving and the pendulum seems to swing in both directions. So help me sort out where we are now with feeding modifications. So the first question for you is, we often recommend modifying the feeding volumes and frequency. So is it better to do smaller, more frequent feedings or larger infrequent feedings for reflux? And if so, how small, how frequent, kind of what are we recommending here? That is the million dollar question. <laughs> and of course, as you know, <laughs> one size doesn't fit all. So in infants, they're stomach doesn't accommodate the way that ours does. And so, you know, the thing that lets you eat a bagel at lunchtime or something, and then on Thanksgiving, you know, lets you go back for thirds without vomiting, that's accommodation. So your stomach's stretching to accommodate the load it's taking. Infant stomachs don't accommodate as well. And so as we're all experienced with, they essentially just overflow and that's what causes reflux. And so it will get referrals sometimes where it's been recommended that an infant do smaller, more frequent feedings, and that works. And, you know, that, that is the idea, right? You're trying to keep them from overflowing. Unfortunately, you know, the number exact ounces to feed or how long to breastfeed or how often to do that is going to vary by infant. And I think knowing that that principle will prevent that overflow is kind of the main point. I wish I had specific numbers to give you, but 
each infant is going to tolerate a slightly different amount. This is where, again, the art can be useful because it, parents have infants that seem to still cue after, you know, you think that they're full. And so it unfortunately is going to be a trial and error sort of thing. But, you know, I, I kind of referenced earlier the parent who's feeding every hour on the hour. You know, I, I think you have to prescribe this within reason. So one of the reasons that it's the first step in the NASPGIN algorithm and recommendations, once you've eliminated the alarm signs, is to avoid overfeeding, to give smaller, more frequent ones, is because it's supposed to be like a relatively low risk, high reward sort of intervention, right? Like we think it's relatively safe to feed a little bit less so they don't overflow. But again, just vigilance to make sure that it doesn't devolve into, you know, something that is impeding everybody's quality of life. Right. So to your point, smaller and more frequent is probably better, but we don't want to overly schedule parents and make them feel like they're feeding constantly at small volumes. So there's a happy medium and it needs to be individualized based on the infant and their their age and how they're feeding in general. The next controversial topic, though, is thickening feedings, which is related to this. And sometimes we say put rice cereal in the bottle and other times we say never put any cereal in the bottle. So where do you stand on this? (laughs) Well, talk about the things that have gone back and forth. Like one of my clear memories from my primary care residency is doing a journal club where we were deciding not to thicken. And here, Mm -hmm. Naspagan is suggesting that we thicken. So I favor it, honestly, again, because it's, you know, a relatively low cost, low risk, potentially high yield intervention. And this is kind of based on the whole principle that a liquid essentially is just going to slosh up easier. That's the way I explain it to parents, Mm -hmm. along with everything we tell parents about why infants are more likely to have reflux, right? Like they have a lower tone in their lower esophageal sphincter than adults do. There's a shorter distance between the stomach and the mouth. And, you know, then along with that, their diet for at least the first six months is almost entirely all liquid. And so if you can thicken it, then ideally it's not going to slosh up as much or, you know, make it as far up the esophagus to where it could be potentially causing problems. There are actually some studies looking at thickening of feeds, and it clearly does fulfill that purpose. It, It does decrease the amount of visible regurgitation. Where it gets trickier is that it doesn't have a clear consensus effect on the non-regurgitation symptoms. So your things like your back arching and irritability. And so that's where it kind of falls down a little bit. But I do like the idea of trying interventions that are relatively low risk that have biological plausibility. So, you know, the actual execution of that can be a little tricky. So breast milk has amylases in it that break down starch. So thickening breast milk can be pretty tricky. And of course, there were some commercial thickeners on the market that were unfortunately associated with necrotizing enterocolitis, even in healthy infants. And mm. so there's not really any sort of a solid, reliable, generally um, assumed to be safe thickeners for breast milk. Now, infants who are on formula, there's a couple of options. So rice starch is what's um, in thickened formulas. Uh, rice cereal obviously contains the rice starch. And when that hits an acidic environment, it congeals, essentially. So um, when you mix a little bit of rice cereal into the formula, the goal isn't that you're making it thick 
before it is going into the infant. It's that it's going to thicken once it gets inside them. And then, of course, there's concerns recently about rice cereal containing arsenic, which is unfortunate. Um, another alternative is oatmeal, and that's what I know our feeding and swallowing center here recommends, because the true oatmeal-based cereals are actually gluten-free and are supposed to thicken as well. I don't think they do as efficiently in the stomach the way that rice does. And then the infant formulas that all have AR in them have that rice starch that's been added. So, you know, the joke in residency at least was that it was AR for anti-reflux, but it's really just AR for added rice. And then of course the caveat there is you need an acidic environment for those formulas to actually work. And so otherwise, when you get to be six months old or so, or whenever complementary foods have been introduced, um, those actually provide another way for you to thicken feeds. So it's kind of at that point that breast milk can potentially be thickened with baby foods or purees in the same way that formula can. One thing that will come up with formula thickened feeds especially is if you use something like oatmeal, that it's going to flow less efficiently. And so the advice used to be to cross-cut the nipple so that the formula would flow out quicker. And definitely know that is not recommended. So there are you know, higher stage nipples that can be used that have a larger opening. And that stage four, you even have some of the like the Y-shaped openings in the nipples. And that allows the thickened formula to flow at a controlled rate and is, is a little more reliable. So thickening, yes, okay, can help with reflux, may or may not help with symptoms because you are adding an osmotic load. And then definitely do not cross-cut your nipples. Okay, so we came down on yes to the smaller, more frequent feedings and yes to thickening. Now, you mentioned formula and formula changes is another topic that's been controversial and has changed over the years. So you mentioned formulas that have added rice, and I know there are others that are marketed specifically towards spit up or reflux. So are those beneficial? And when would you move towards more of an extensively hydrolyzed or amino acid formula specifically for reflux? So there actually, there aren't any, or at the time of our recommendations, they're, they're based on the fact that there were no randomized controlled trials to evaluate the use of partially hydrolyzed or amino acid-based formulas for the treatment of reflux. So there are a couple steps before you get there that I just want to clarify before we get into that specific question. So I mentioned the AR formulas before. There are also formulas on the market that are entirely whey protein as opposed to a mix of casein and whey. And this is, again, going back to biological plausibility, I recognize is our lowest form of evidence. But if you remember Little Miss Muffet, she was sitting on her tuffet eating her curds and whey. <laughs> the curds are casein, which is coagulated. And when you have the mm -hmm. parent with their infant who spits up in your office and they say, it's gross, it's sour, it's all curdled, that's what casein does. It curdles and it sits in your stomach, whereas whey protein doesn't curdle. So it's honestly a lot more likely to flow forward out of the stomach than to just kind of sit there. Um, so there are formulas out there that are entirely whey protein based. Another thing that used to be recommended back in the day were soy formulas. So this is starting to get into the whole cow's milk protein sensitivity question. And so the reason that formula changes are recommended in these patients is it actually can be 
somewhat difficult to differentiate symptoms of reflux, especially some of those extraesophageal symptoms, you know, like irritability and apparent pain and back arching and all of those things. It can be difficult to differentiate between reflux and a cow's milk protein allergy, which talk about things that change over time. I believe that's been called 10 different things mm -hmm. since I finished training, but also called milk soy protein intolerance, milk protein allergy, or I believe these days the most vogue term is food protein induced allergic practicalitis. Mm -hmm. You know, nice and easy to say. But as we get into differentiating between those things, maybe not so important because we would treat with a formula change. So again, back when the pendulum was swinging another direction, soy formula was used in these cases. But there is definite cross-reactivity between casein and soy protein. And so honestly, by the time a patient gets to see us in clinic, we just assume that if it seems like they're allergic to dairy, they're going to be allergic to soy. So eliminating both of them is the right thing to do. So switching to soy, you know, may seem like a logical, again, gentle first step, but it's also actually not that likely to get you a good effect. And so Naspigan and Espigan and all of us now at this point just recommend jumping over soy, ignoring that entirely, and then getting to the ones you asked about. So like the hydrolyzed or the amino acid formulas. And so you know, the reality outside of boards as we record this podcast in September of 2022 is that it's hard to get hydrolyzed formulas or amino acid formulas due to the shortages in the United States. And so I think practically any of those you can get if you're trying to uh, go down this pathway of, you know, making formula changes is appropriate. In reality, most children who have a milk soy protein intolerance do respond to just a protein hydrolysate formula or hydrolyzed formula. So those are ones like your alimentum, progestamil, and nutramigen that start with milk protein still, but it's partially hydrolyzed. So that should reduce the allergenicity of it. And that, that is effective for nine out of 10 infants who have a milk soy protein intolerance. And just in my own personal practice, I feel there's a clear improvement in a lot of those extra esophageal symptoms. Again, a lot of the irritability, fussiness, gassiness, perceived abdominal pain. Now, as you hydrolyze the milk protein, as those constituents get smaller and smaller, you're increasing the osmolarity of the formula. And so just like that could potentially lead to some intolerance and, you know, gassiness, abdominal pain type symptoms in formula fed infants who are thickened. As you increase the osmolarity, there's the chance that you have those same sort of symptoms as well. And so you see that the most potentially with the amino acid formulas. So those never start with a milk protein. They're just made of amino acid constituents, so they should not have allergens in them at all. You know, now there are people who will say that Elecare, because it has corn syrup solids in it, is uh, not fully hypoallergenic, but, you know, those shouldn't really be causing an allergy. Um, so as to which one to choose, like I said, most infants will respond to the hydrolyzed formulas and then you don't necessarily need to go to an amino acid formula. I think in, you know, kind of stepping away from the professional guidelines for a second and going to the practicality of it, I personally think this decision might be based on your assessment of the patient, the parent, how significant symptoms are, how stressful they are, you know, do you have, you think, two weeks to um, try out a hydrolyzed formula before going to an amino acid formula? I think it would not necessarily be wrong to try an amino acid formula, but 
at the same level, if you're considering starting an amino acid formula, that's a good time to refer to a gastroenterologist. So sticking with the controversial questions for you, there's something that we call reflux precautions or recommending positional changes. And while holding a baby upright after feeding or at least keeping their head above their stomach makes sense, how do we recommend parents position a sleeping infant who just fed and has GERD? Yeah, so that's definitely another tricky question, right? Because back to sleep is inarguably the safest way for an infant to sleep. And when you look in the data and you actually measure reflux events with an impedance probe, yes, keeping them upright does decrease episodes of reflux. Also, laying them on the left side position as well as prone also decrease the number of reflux incidents. Now, obviously, we absolutely do not recommend putting an infant prone. But knowing that that sideline, that left lateral position does objectively decrease episodes of reflux, you know, may be a little helpful, especially for infants who are breastfeeding, right? That's when you get into like a football hold and that can reduce episodes of reflux. Unfortunately, raising the head of the bed, which is helpful in adults and older children, and SBN actually does recommend it for older children, is still risky in infants because they can slide down the bed. When they end up at the bottom, they kind of crunch up like they are in a car seat, and that you know is going to increase intra-abdominal pressure and cause reflux. So I think there is the up, keeping the infant upright, but then there is also you know it, it is reasonable for a parent who is still attentive and holding their infant to put them in that left lateral position to decrease episodes. So thank you for clearing up some of those controversial non-pharmacologic management strategies for reflux. But if we have a patient with GERD and we are thinking about starting a medication, when do we want to consider doing that? And what's our first line treatment? Yeah. So if we're looking at just pure episodes of reflux, as we know, the acid suppressing medications don't really seem to actually reduce the number of episodes. So, you know, your Prilosex, your Prevacids aren't necessarily going to decrease the amount of visible reflux. There are some head-to-head trials between PPIs and placebos. There actually have been a number of those that have been completed in the past 10 to 15 years. And unfortunately, they don't, it's not clear that they actually truly work to decrease crying, symptoms of distress, definitely don't seem to help with vomiting and regurgitation. You know, there are there's a bunch of a lot of concern about risks associated with PPIs, right? Most of those risks are in long-term use, so talking about on the order of years. You know, there was a for instance a study that came out of linking PPIs to dementia in older adults, but of course that gets in the media and there's concern about it. So, you know, these medications we do think are safe in the short term. You know, there are increased risk long-term, for sure, of GI infections and C. diff in hospitalized patients. But in reality, you know, a lot of the risks that parents may be concerned about, you can reassure them, are over long-term use. And that gets into why Naspagen says it's okay to use these medications is as part of this whole principle of, you know, a a two-week trial of a medication as both diagnosis and treatment. So, you know, they recommend continuing for a minimum of two weeks to see if there is any difference. Honestly, in in my experience, you'd start to see that difference within a couple of days, uh, usually. And well, in thinking about being cautious in using medications in infants, let's say we do start them on a PPI as recommended by Naspagan and symptoms improve. 
how long do we typically treat for and how do we know when we can stop the medication if their symptoms are doing well on it? How do we know they didn't outgrow it and that they still need the medication? We've established that you should continue the trial for at least two weeks, right, so that you can see an effect of it. So if you do see a difference, then NASPGAN recommends a four to eight week trial. And once you've gotten to that eight week, eight week point, that's when you should start trying to wean it. And so if your symptoms haven't improved by two weeks, it's okay to go ahead and wean then. But if you do see improvement, uh, set that expectation that you know, you'll see the family back in six to eight weeks, and that's when you'll start talking about coming down off of it. Now, it's important to note that PPIs do need to be weaned down so that if you stop them suddenly, you can have a rebound acid hypersecretion. And then if you successfully wean and you don't have a return of symptoms, then no further treatment is indicated. And it's great to know about the weaning. How long do you usually wean over? So personally, I wean over about a two-week period. Um, so initially cutting the dose in half and then essentially half again. You know, if you're giving it twice daily, you can go down to once daily. If you're giving one mg per keg, you can go down to 0.5. And then from the daily, you're going to every other day. But usually over a two-week period. Great. Now, as we balance the pros and cons of using medications, let's say a family doesn't want to start a medication yet. What are the risks of not treating reflux in a symptomatic infant? Right. So this goes back to the kind of the degradation of that successful feeding experience, right? The infant has a noxious experience with feeds, then that's going to become a negative experience for them, and you may start to develop a feeding aversion. Some signs of that to look out for are their meal times get longer and longer. Infants, you know, pulling off the bottle, batting it away. If they're already on solid foods, starting to, you know, be selective with either textures or specific foods, maybe not progressing with textures. If they are starting to get to the point where they chew, just continuing to chew and not swallowing because that's going to stimulate reflux. And so feeding is a, is a huge piece of it. Otherwise, you know, there's in infants who have pathological reflux that is coming all the way up to the top of their esophagus and interfering with their airway, that can cause all sorts of respiratory issues. So we've all seen brief resolved unexplained events present this way. There's definitely an association between infants and toddlers who have significant reflux and respiratory issues like wheezing, bronchiolitis. They actually have done a controlled trials of using PPIs in asthma and looking at other prokinetic medications like antibiotics and asthma hasn't made a difference yet, but there's definitely a connection there. Otherwise, you can develop, you know, irritation in your esophagus, which is just going to make all of these, like any feeding issues worse, right? So that's starting to get in the territory of, you know, having a gastroenterologist kind of investigate some of these things for you or an ENT or a pulmonologist. But while they may not develop Barrett's esophagitis, like an adult would who has untreated GERD-type symptoms, chronic esophagitis can absolutely lead to feeding intolerance and then limited calorie intake and the subsequent weight loss that goes along with that. Those are great things for us to keep in mind and to counsel families about. And I'll just add that refluxy babies can be really challenging to manage as a parent. And so just checking in with those families about how they're coping and making sure that they are getting enough sleep as parents and feel well supported. And uh, certainly, you know, children who have a temperament mismatch with a parent are higher risk for abuse. And so just keeping that on our radar as well with 
a population of infants who might be slightly higher risk due to their fussiness and irritability. So I feel pretty comfortable now managing GERD in primary care, thanks to you updating me on the current evidence there. So thank you very much. And we know that you are available to take care of our patients who don't neatly fit in that box of GERD and have some of those red flag features or maybe aren't responding to our first-line treatment strategies. So thank you so much to you and everyone else at CHOP-GI for helping us when cases get a little bit more complex. Thank you so much for having me, Katie. I really enjoyed it, and I really appreciate the invitation. Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or visit chop.edu slash PCP podcast for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat.